This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. Hi there. Welcome back to the show. Movie songs were a very vital part of the Hollywood machine in late 1937, with many recordings of movie songs making the popular Tin Pan Alley in New York City become nearly obsolete. So lucrative were sales of movie songs that Hollywood studios made sure to either create a musical or find a way to have at least one potential hit song in a movie. But by the time 1937's slate of films was released, movie musicals were on the cusp of taking a back seat to more realistic films. Musicals were still in favor with movie audiences, as the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers one-two punch of Follow the Fleet and Swing Time in 1936 had them clamoring for more, especially after Astaire's chart-topping hit The Way You Look Tonight won the Academy Award for Best Song. But for the first time since the inaugural awards, there was no musical on the list of Best Picture nominees for the year 1937. Stage Door and A Star is Born dealt with show business, but featured no songs. Ginger Rogers starred in Stage Door alongside Oscar-winning actress Katherine Hepburn, but without Fred Astaire. Rogers had been doing lots of non-musical films in the past three years, but Stage Door brought her some of her best reviews as an actress, more than as a dancer. And only one musical cracked the top ten grossing films of 1937. That was the Broadway Melody of 1938, the third movie in the Broadway Melody trilogy. It made $2.8 million. The film featured some songs written for the film by Nacio Herb Brown and Arthur Freed, who wrote the Broadway Melody for the original film in 1928. None of the new songs caught on with the public or with their songwriting peers and failed to earn a nomination for the Best Song Academy Award. Musicals couldn't find a place in the Best Picture category, but in the category of Best Song, four of the five nominees came from musical films, or at least they had the feel of a musical given the number of song performances in them. Two of those songs were in two of the most anticipated films of the year and starred, of course, Bing Crosby and the duo of Astaire and Rogers. We'll get to them in just a few minutes, but let's start our discussion of this year's Academy Award-nominated songs alphabetically with Remember Me from the film Mr. Dodd Takes the Air. The songwriters behind this tune are very familiar if you've been listening to the previous episodes of this podcast. Harry Warren and Al Duman had been the toast of Hollywood songwriters thanks to their winning song, Lullaby of Broadway, that helped Busby Berkeley stage one of the most elaborate and groundbreaking production numbers of the time. In 1937, they were still the go-to songwriters for all of Berkeley's ideas, but their contract with Warner Brothers also got them a job writing five songs for the film Mr. Dodd Takes the Air. The film features Kenny Baker as Claude Dodd, a small-town electrician who is whisked away to New York to become an overnight radio sensation due to his natural singing talents. The fame of being a celebrity brings him into the circle of a gold-digging blonde and a Broadway diva, as well as a receptionist, who is played by Jane Wyman. Wyman would become famous later for marrying Ronald Reagan, before he became president, and Mr. Dodd Takes the Air was one of seven 1937 feature films in which she appeared and that was the first year she got screen credit for her work. As for the songs in the film, a few of them could be viewed as helping to develop the plot, including Here Comes the Sandman, a lullaby that gets Claude his first job singing on the radio to put people to sleep every night. The Oscar-nominated song that comes from the film is performed by Claude at the party of the rich Broadway actress played by frequent scene-stiller Alice Brady. At her request, Claude sings Remember Me, which has no connection to the film's plot, but Warren's melody makes it one of the standout songs from the film. The prologue sets up the song as a simple ditty, as Claude sings that he just made up the words in his head. The verses and the bridge speak of a couple looking back on their lives from wedding day to becoming parents. Claude sings to his love that he hopes she will remember the big moments in their lives together. Thank you. 
It's a theme that everybody knows. Not a hilly-billy ballad full of sentimental salad, though you think it's silly, I suppose. My own refrain, child of my brain. And my song is dedicated to the people who are mated. Listen now. For this is how it goes. Do you remember one September afternoon? I stood with you and listened to a wedding tune. And didn't I go with you on your honeymoon? Remember me. Do you recall a cottage small upon a hill? Where every day I had to pay another bill And if I'm not mistaken, dear, I pay them still Like just about every song released in a Hollywood film, Remember Me was snatched up quickly for cover versions. Bing Crosby put his stamp on it in 1937, and Baker himself sang a much more intimate version on the official record, making it almost seem like he is singing to someone who is slowly losing their memory, or at the end of a marriage. Listen to just one verse and you'll agree that the song takes on an entirely new meaning with the slowed down tempo. Remember one September afternoon I stood with you and listened to a wedding tune And didn't I go with you on your honeymoon Remember me Do you recall a cottage small upon a hill Where every day I had to pay another bill And if I'm not mistaken, dear I pay them still Remember me Bing Crosby had a movie of his own released in 1937 called Waikiki Wedding, which contains our second nominated song, Sweet Leilani. The title of the film comes from a scene at the very beginning of the film when two people are getting married, presumably in Waikiki on the big island of Hawaii. After that, the title has no real meaning. The film should have been called Blue Hawaii after the song that is played the most in the film. The first time we hear the song Blue Hawaii is during the opening credits by a chorus. It's not sung too much later by Bing Crosby himself as Tony Martin, the public relations director of the Imperial Pineapple Company. He tries to croon his way into the heart of a woman chosen as the Pineapple Girl in an effort to get her to fall in love with him and change her mind about being in Hawaii. Her name is Georgia Smith, played by Shirley Ross. This was the first of several movies which would pair Crosby and Ross, and you could tell that the chemistry is there when they sing the third iteration of Blue Hawaii while on a sailboat. Oh, what is that? Mm -hmm. uh, what's what? That thing they're singing up there. I've heard it somewhere. Oh, well, I should think you would if it's very popular here on the islands. They all play it and sing it. 
called Blue Hawaii. Oh. Nice little song, too. Not at all. The night is heavenly And you are heaven to me Lovely lyrics Yes, and lovely And blue Hawaii With all this loneliness what now? Come with me. Come with me. No, no, you gotta sing it. While the moon is on the sea. While the moon is on the sea. That's right, and uh, the night is young. The night is young. Very good, and uh, so are we. And so are we. Don't tell me, I remember now. Yeah. Dreams come true. You got it right. In blue Hawaii. And mine could all come true. This magic night of nights with you. Blue Hawaii and three other songs in the movie were written by the established duo of Leo Robin and Ralph Ranger. Even though Robin and Ranger hadn't been nominated for an Oscar since writing Love and Bloom for Bing Crosby back in 1934, they remained very busy, writing songs for almost 10 films in three years. One of them was Rhythm on the Range in 1936, starring Bing Crosby, but that film had a hodgepodge of songwriters working on the soundtrack, so anything anyone wrote for that film was destined to get lost in the shuffle. But when Bing was considering making a movie in Hawaii, he called on Robin and Ranger to tackle the song score. In summer 1936, after it was announced that Waikiki Wedding was to be one of Crosby's next pictures, the crooner and his wife boarded a steamer across the Pacific to Hawaii for some R&R, and possibly to also get a feel of the Hawaiian life while the writers and director hammered out the script for Waikiki Wedding. While there, Crosby ran into an old colleague named Harry Owens, who worked briefly with Crosby in 1926. Owens was working as the band leader at the Royal Hawaiian Hotel in Honolulu, and Crosby sauntered into the dance hall where Owens was conducting the band as they played a tune that caught Crosby's ear. It was Sweet Leilani, which Owens wrote as a love song of sorts to his daughter born two years earlier. According to biographer Gary Giddens, quote, Bing made a joke about not being able to pronounce Leilani, but during the course of the evening, he requested the unpronounceable title another five or six times. The following morning, Bing called Harry Owens to tell him he wanted the song for his next picture. End quote. The fight to get Sweet Leilani into the movie was a tough one. Harry Owens didn't want his deeply personal song into a commercial film. Crosby replied by saying that all royalties from the song would go to Leilani's education. Producer Arthur Hornblow Jr. didn't want the song in the movie as well, and Bing replied by walking off the set until Hornblow agreed to let Crosby film the scene where he thought it fit best. The scene comes when Tony and Georgia arrive on an island on a silly Act 2 plot to restore a presumably stolen pearl to a volcano to please the gods. As a young girl falls asleep on a hammock, a band of Hawaiian musicians plays nearby singing Owen's lyrics in Hawaiian, as translated by Jimmy Lowell. Crosby takes over from the singers with his sweet voice that we heard put a young Edith Fellows to sleep in Pennies from Heaven. Thank you. 
Leilani, heavenly flower, tropic skies are jealous as they shine. I think they're jealous of your for me and the child tosses fitfully for hours the scene worked so well and the performance so admired that Bing went into the studio the very next day and made an official record it sold 1 million copies the first Bing Crosby record to reach that milestone imagine all the money now that went into Leilani's college fund before those monumental record sales the trade magazine variety was skeptical that Bing's voice would carry the songs into the mainstream writing, quote, while none of the songs here will hit the top performance brackets, they fit the picture's theme in the voices of Crosby, Shirley Ross, and Martha Ray. They should at least get a minor play on the air, end quote. While Sweet Leilani was the more popular song, Bing's official recording of Blue Hawaii was a big seller as well, and would gain the later attention of Frank Sinatra, and especially Elvis Presley, who shaped an entire movie around the song. Though he was not working in Hollywood at the time, Harry Owens would have been able to nominate Sweet Leilani for Oscar consideration since the Academy Rules for 1937 allowed, quote, each principal collaborator on music and lyrics used for the first time in motion pictures, end quote, to submit the name of their best song and the names of two songs written by others. The issue with Sweet Leilani getting in as an Oscar nominee doesn't lie in Owens' ability to mail in a nomination ballot the song would have likely become a nominee anyway thanks to the huge record sales. Remember that the song was not written specifically for the film and had been performed lots of times by Harry Owens' band in Hawaii at least two years before Bing sang it on the Paramount studio lot in February 1937. The Academy rules only state that a song could not have been used already in another motion picture. So, Sweet Leilani was eligible to compete for an Academy Award and a relatively unknown band leader who seemed happy with his life in Hawaii was suddenly in contention for the industry's top honor. So we're moving on to the third Oscar-nominated song of 1937, and it's called That Old Feeling from the movie Vogues of 1938. The title is actually a little bit longer, officially known as Walter Wanger's Vogues of 1938, with the producer making his name prominent for reasons unknown, since he had never done it before and would not do it again. Wanger had produced The Trail of the Lonesome Pine the previous year, which delivered an Oscar nomination for the song A Melody from the Sky, and showed that Technicolor was a viable way to make movies in color. Bogues of 1938 was also shot in Technicolor, a necessity to show off the fashions throughout the 108-minute film. Though it's essentially a non-stop fashion show, the movie does have a plot of some kind, with Joan Bennett starring as Wendy, a debutante who leaves her fiancé at the altar and decides to become a model for the house of Curson. Curson is played by Warner Baxter, who had won the Best Actor Academy Award in 1929's Old Arizona. While Wendy hides out at Curson's house to avoid the press, Curson's wife leaves him because he won't put her in his fashion shows. A depressed Curson decides to go out to a couple of nightclubs to drown his sorrows, and Wendy tags along. At their final outing, they listen to a woman singing That Old Feeling at a Moroccan-themed nightclub. As you'll hear in the performance, Curson laments that not only is he visiting his wife's favorite club, but the singer is performing her favorite song. 
The lyrics speak of nostalgia for a great love, and the singer promises not to love again. Last night I started out happy, just as I've done in the past. But suddenly something happened to me, and I found my heart beating oh so fast. My wife's favorite place. I saw you last night and got that old feeling. When you came in sight, I got that old feeling. The moment that you danced by, I felt a thrill. And when you caught my eye, my heart stood still. My wife's favorite song. And I felt my head reeling I didn't care But couldn't help that old feeling The moment that you danced by I felt a thrill And then when you caught my eye My heart stood still Of love was still burning. There'll be no new romance for me. It's foolish to start for that old feeling. Is still in my. Virginia Verrill sings that old feeling in the film, making one of her few on-screen appearances after making a career of dubbing in her singing for other actresses. Most recently, she had dubbed in for Jean Harlow in 1936, singing Remember Me in the film Susie. That old feeling and five others in Vogue's of 1938 were written by Sammy Fain and Lou Brown, who were working together for their first and only collaboration. Fain had been doing very well working with Irving Cajal, and it's not clear why Cajal was not available to write lyrics for Vogue's of 1938. Brown had been very successful on Broadway, writing hits for various reviews and helping launch the careers of Ethel Merman, W.C. Fields, and the Three Stooges. The Russian-born Brown's work on That Old Feeling would mark his only Academy Award nomination, and he retired from songwriting in the late 1940s. This was also Fane's first Academy Award nomination, and after being denied the opportunity to compete for the award in the early 1930s for writing songs for Maurice Chevalier, Fane surely was hungry for some recognition. Vogue's of 1938 was not very popular with the public, barely earning $1 million in ticket sales, but that old feeling was a hot request by artists wishing to perform their own versions. Dozens of singers would take the song and put an equally romantic stamp on it, while instrumentalists would turn it into a jazz standard. The fourth nominated song of 1937 comes from the seventh film in the Fred Astaire Ginger Rogers catalog. The song is They Can't Take That Away From Me from the film Shall We Dance, and it reunites the stars with director Mark Sandrich for his fourth film with the duo. The film is notable for three very good songs by the songwriting team of George and Ira Gershwin, marking just their second time writing songs for films. The Gershwin brothers were immensely popular for creating some of the top Broadway shows of the time, including Porgy and Bess, and writing the songs I Got Rhythm and Embraceable You for the show Girl Crazy. While Girl Crazy might not be well known, those two songs have become song standards many decades later. Porgy and Bess was not a successful show at the time because it pushed so many barriers, forcing the brothers to turn to Hollywood for a fresh start. That's when producer Pan Berman asked them to write the songs for RKO's next Fred and Ginger movie, Shall We Dance? A script hadn't been completed when the Gershwins were hired, though they were aware of the general plot outline 
and the fact that, naturally, Fred and Ginger were going to do a couple of dances together. George Gershwin maintained his jazz influences throughout the score, but worked hard to weave in classical melodies for the ballet sequences, especially the film's finale that features an extensive ballet performance. Ira Gershwin's contributions are just as important to the film, even if there are only four songs in the film. But lyricists can often be happy that moviegoers often sing their words more often than hum the composer's melodies as they are leaving the theater. And that is what likely was happening in the summer of 1937. Perhaps the most lasting song from Shall We Dance is Let's Call the Whole Thing Off, a song that comically encapsulates the frustration Fred and Ginger's characters are having at the time. Astaire plays a ballet dancer named Peter, who falls in love with Linda, Rogers' jazz dancer, during a transatlantic ship crossing until a rumor about them being married causes the usual comic hijinks. After evading the press in New York City, Peter and Linda skate through Central Park and after a brief rest, admonish each other for the way they talk. Tomato, tomato, let's call the whole thing off. Even though the fake marriage is causing some tension, it's clear the two like each other because they decide to call the calling off off, one of the best lines Ira Gershwin wrote, and perform a revolutionary dance on roller skates. But Let's Call the Whole Thing Off wasn't the song that would get the Oscar nomination. Not too long after their roller skating escapade, Peter and Linda decide to get married for real in New Jersey in order to get a real divorce. After that quickie marriage, they are on a ferry back to Manhattan. Peter is sad that the divorce means the two will go their separate ways, especially because he'll miss Linda's best qualities. And just like he did the year before in The Way You Look Tonight, Fred Astaire sings a list of notable qualities about his co-star, making her fall in love with him at possibly the wrong time. They can't take that away from me as notable because it is not followed by an elaborate stance routine. Instead, the two return to their car as the ferry reaches the dock. Our romance won't end on a sorrowful note. Go by tomorrow, you're gone. The song is ended, but as the songwriter wrote, the melody lingers on. They may take you from me. I'll miss your fond caress. But though they take you from me, I'll still possess the way you wear your hand, the way you sip your tea, the memory of all that. Your smile just beams The way you sing of key The way you haunt my dreams No, no, they can't take that away from me We may never, never meet again On the bumpy road to love But I'll always, always keep the way you hold your knife The way we dance till three The way you've changed my life No, no, they can't take that away from me, no They can't take that away from me George Gershwin had Fred Astaire reaching for some high notes in the song, but he pulls them off sweetly. Writer Alec Wilder said of the song in his 1972 book, American Popular Song, that the repeated final two lines, quote, achieve in its ending a calm, pastoral resolution in the face of the lyric's refusal to be separated from all those loving qualities, end quote. And it makes the tearful expression that Linda is trying to hide from Peter all the more poignant, since she is starting to feel that she doesn't want this marriage to end. 
Another interesting aspect of the lyrics is the list of all the qualities that Peter sings about are very ordinary things that most moviegoers might notice in their significant others while sitting in the dark movie theater. Imagine that every coupled movie watcher at the time identified with Fred and Ginger in that moment. Now, just as a reminder, only one song from a songwriting team could be nominated for the 1937 Academy Award for Best Song. So putting up the sentimental love song that has the same structure as the previous year's winner, sung by Fred Astaire no less, might have been the logical choice over the comical song featuring a dance on roller skates. And it would turn out to be George Gershwin's favorite song. But George Gershwin was displeased with the fact that They Can't Take That Away From Me didn't have a dance number in it, making it likely that the song would not be remembered. But George's melody was used in the film's finale, as Peter dances a ballet with Harriet Hochter, a famed ballet dancer who reportedly was going to take Ginger Rogers' role in Shall We Dance, until Ginger decided to take the part after all. So They Can't Take That Away From Me got the same treatment that The Way You Look Tonight got in Top Hat, a singular song performance, followed by a lengthy instrumental reprise in the finale. Of all the scores that the Gershwin brothers wrote for the stage, the music they wrote for Shall We Dance has endured through generations. Unfortunately, George Gershwin never got the chance to enjoy the success of his music. He had been fighting a brain tumor shortly after finishing work on Shall We Dance and died on July 11, 1937, two months after the film's premiere. His death meant that he would earn a posthumous Oscar nomination for his work on They Can't Take That Away From Me, just the third person to earn an Academy Award nomination posthumously, and the first songwriter. The Gershwin brothers worked on another film in 1937 that did not do as well as Shall We Dance. A Damsel in Distress starred Fred Astaire, but it would be his first musical film in RKO Pictures to not have Ginger Rogers by his side. Joan Fontaine played his love interest, and it's obvious that Fontaine did not have the dancing or singing chops that made Ginger Rogers famous. The chemistry between Astaire and Fontaine could not convince moviegoers to check them out, and A Damsel in Distress did not make a profit. So it's no wonder that the Gershwin tombs from the film, including the now-classic Nice Work If You Can Get It, were not picked for Academy Award consideration. The fifth and final nominated song of 1937 comes from the film Artists and Models, a little-seen comedy from the Paramount Pictures studio that features six songs by six different songwriting teams. The song that received the Oscar nomination from this film was Whispers in the Dark, with music by Frederick Hollander and lyrics by Oscar nominee Leo Robin. It was the only song in the film that did not involve the contributions of lyricist Ted Kohler, and many reviews of the time were not too forgiving of Kohler's songs, including a very lavish number that aimed to outdo Busby Berkeley, but these days only comes off as offensive thanks to the appearance of white entertainer Martha Ray in blackface, performing with Louis Armstrong. The film's plot involves comedian Jack Benny playing an advertising executive who is depending on a new million-dollar contract to keep his company afloat. He aims to have his fiancée, Paula, selected as the cover model for the popular Townsend Silver ads. This involves some mistaken identity, as many comedies relied on at the time, and of course a happy ending with the promise of marriage all around. As for our nominated song, you'll remember lyricist Leo Robin as the man who wrote the words for the Oscar-nominated song Love in Bloom back in 1934, the first year of the Best Song Award. Since then, Robin continued his collaboration with composer Ralph Ranger, but the two weren't very prolific, writing just one or two songs per year. After writing the love song Moonlight and Shadows for the 1937 film The Jungle Princess with Hollander, the two contributed the similarly-themed Whispers in the Dark for artists and models. Both songs speak of a nighttime romance, but Whispers in the Dark is different because it looks ahead to the possibility of the romance ending at dawn. Whispers in the Dark is performed as a piece of entertainment at a nightclub in Miami where Paula has traveled to attract Townsend interests in the hopes of becoming his model. Connie Boswell sings Whispers in the Dark to a man whose face we never see, while she is partially hidden in shadow. Boswell had been stricken with polio as a child, and her inability to walk properly did not affect her amazing career as a radio singer, but it forced her to always be seated when performing on stage or on the movie screen. 
The song begins with Andre Kostelanitz's orchestra playing Hollander's melody before Boswell sings. Then there's another instrumental section as we see two synchronized swimmers perform in the pool next to the orchestra. Boswell returns later to close out the song with a reprise of the song's closing lines.
The song does foreshadow a scene that follows shortly thereafter. Paula has gained Townsend's attention, and they get to know each other during a walk by the nightclub's pool. Hollander's melody for the song plays during this scene, and we wonder if there is a romance that is beginning. The New York Times was one of the few newspapers to highlight the songs, saying, quote, If the score is less than epical, it manages to get by, and in one case, Frederick Hollander's whispers in the dark, it points unerringly at a hit. End quote. That review might have influenced Hollander and Robin to put this song on their Academy ballad instead of Moonlight and Shadows. Wouldn't you, if the New York Times was praising it? But no songs by Bing Crosby or Fred Astaire or Kenny Baker or even Connie Boswell could bring the public to the movie houses as much as the sensation that was Adriana Casalotti, who was the star of the first full-length animated movie, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. While Disney's film was the hot attraction around the world when it was released at Christmas time in 1937, making more than $4 million, a record box office haul that would last until Gone with the Wind premiered two years later. And the songs it produced would be sung by children and adults for generations. None of those timeless songs, however, were nominated for an Academy Award. Casalotti had just moved to Hollywood to start her career as an actress, and after working as a chorus girl for MGM, while Disney snatched her up to be the voice of the first Disney heroine. And once Snow White sang about wanting a prince to rescue her, the bar from movie standards were raised instantly. The song, Someday My Prince Will Come, sung as Snow White is thinking about the prince she had met earlier in the movie, has Casalotti reaching some very high notes, which highlights the yearning in the song. And then the song is reprised at the end when the prince takes Snow White to his castle. Composer Frank Churchill had been the studio's top composer for short films and would go on to write the music for Dumbo, Bambi, and Peter Pan. His work on Snow White started another trend in Hollywood, with composers starting to write the underscores for films in addition to the music for the songs. Lyricist Larry Morey was also contracted to write for the Disney studio and would continue to do so for his entire career. Disney did something unheard of for movie songs by releasing a full album of all the songs from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, as well as some of Churchill's underscore. Previously, songs from musicals were released as singles and forced to fight among each other for popularity. But the movie didn't help any of the songs become favorites among the songwriters responsible for nominating the top five songs of the year. And I think it was because it was released so late in 1937. Though the Academy didn't specifically forbid songs from animated films, whether they be short films or feature length, the consensus by music scholars many decades later was that the songwriters were not willing to nominate a song that is not performed by a human being on the movie screen. If that is to be believed, that line of thinking will change in a few years, but it's not likely that there was bias against such a popular film. The film did receive a nomination in the scoring category, which is not a major accomplishment given that Every Hollywood studio was guaranteed a nomination in this category in 1937. The score by Churchill and Morey lost the Academy Award to 100 Men and a Girl, a film that gave no official composer credit but received the official plaque as an Academy Award winning score. 
So again, why did none of the songs from Snow White get an Oscar nomination? Though it was released in December 1937 in time to qualify for that year's awards, it wasn't put into more movie houses until February 1938, well past the nomination period, and too late for nominators to realize what a big hit the movie was becoming. The Academy didn't have time to realize the magnitude of Snow White at the time, but the film did get some recognition in 1939 when Walt Disney was presented with an Oscar for his vision, along with seven miniature Oscars. Everyone involved with Snow White's song score was able to appreciate the popularity it had among the public, and nearly 90 years later, Someday My Prince Will Come was voted as the 19th best movie song of the first 100 years of movies by the American Film Institute and the movie continuously ranks high among the best animated films of all time. Another song that was denied a place as an Academy Award nominee that year came from the film Hollywood Hotel, and was a lengthy three-minute tune called Hooray for Hollywood, written by Richard Whiting and Johnny Mercer, and staged by Busby Berkeley. The film itself is largely forgettable, but the opening production launched the song into one of the great standards of all time. The opening features a large marching band sending off small-town singer Ronnie Bowers as he boards the airplane to Hollywood. Hooray for Hollywood That's gooey bally hooly Hollywood Where any office boy or young mechanic Can be a panic with just a good-looking pan any shop girl can be a top girl if she pleases the tired businessman. Hooray for Hollywood! You may be homely in your neighborhood. To be an actor, see Mr. Factor, you make your kisser look good. Go out and try your luck, you may be Donald Duck. Hooray for Hollywood! In one of the most ironic circumstances, Hooray for Hollywood would become one of the theme songs of the Academy Awards when it was broadcast on television, and a general tune to signify celebrating the wishes and dreams of those who go to Hollywood. The title Hotel was demolished later, and in its place stands the Dolby Theater, where the Academy Awards have been held pretty much continuously since 2001. Mercer was new to the Hollywood scene in 1938, after spending many years in New York City's Tin Pan Alley, and he found it to be, quote, a big put-on, end quote. His lyrics for Hooray for Hollywood put subtle and not-so-subtle jabs at the industry, an early sign of the satirical lyrics that would later make him famous. The Academy Awards dinner on March 10, 1938, was held at the Biltmore Hotel and was delayed a week to allow Los Angeles to recover from the torrential rains and flooding on March 3rd that killed 113 and caused nearly $100 million in damage. Louise Rayner won Louise Rayner won her second consecutive Best Actress Oscar, this time for playing an Asian woman in The Good Earth. Alice Brady, who chewed the scenery in Mr. Dodd Takes the Air, won the Best Supporting Actress Award for In Old Chicago, playing the famous Mrs. O'Leary of The Great Chicago Fire and the Best Picture of the Year was voted to be The Life of Emile Zola. Those awards went as expected, but as for Best Song, there might have been a little bit of awkwardness involved with the presentation. Presenting the award was Irving Berlin, who missed out on a nomination that year, but was being a good sport as a presenter. He had written songs for On the Avenue in 1937, but none of them were popular enough to convince his peers to nominate him that year. Though his peers didn't like the song score for On the Avenue, critics thought differently, saying, quote, The brilliant score that Irving Berlin has composed for On the Avenue is the most distinctive feature of the new musical photo play. There are four or five pieces that you will be hearing for a long time in public meeting places and on the radio. End quote. None of those songs had the staying power of most of the nominated songs that year, especially Sweet Leilani, but he hoped the film he was working on at the time, Alexander's Ragtime Band, would be different. Irving Berlin might not have been an Oscar nominee for any of his songs from On the Avenue, but one of his biggest creations would be heard in November 1938, about eight months after the Academy Awards. The famous singer Kate Smith introduced his revived song, God Bless America, on Armistice Day, making a rallying cry against Adolf Hitler.
Back in March, Irving Berlin stopped by the Biltmore Hotel to give the Academy Award for Best Song to Harry Owens for writing Sweet Leilani. It was also the first time a solo songwriter won the Academy Award, and as you'll find out, Owens sits in somewhat rare company of solo songwriters who will win this award. It could be called a surprise win for Owens, as many were predicting a sympathy vote for the Gershwins after George's sudden death. Owens was gracious in his victory, giving pretty much all the credit to Bing Crosby. After that night, Owens didn't vanish into obscurity. He was instrumental in making Hawaiian music popular on the mainland, especially when television became the new entertainment medium. His Hawaiian music performances and compositions numbered about 300, and if he and Leilani got a lot of money from Sweet Leilani, there was plenty more to come in the 1940s and 1950s. Some were a little bitter that They Can't Take That Away From Me did not win the award. Oscar Levant, a longtime friend of the Gershwins, said this about Harry Owens. Quote, His music is dead, but he lives on forever. End quote. And that eternal existence comes from the fact that Owens is an Academy Award winner. Oscar Levant had a great career as a pianist and composer, but never wrote music that would be considered worthy of an Academy Award nomination. Of course, an Oscar nomination or win is not the end-all, be-all in terms of status in Hollywood, but no one would argue that many people in Hollywood might have lapsed into obscurity without it. And that's a good segue to our next episode, which will feature some songwriters that enjoyed their first and only Oscar nominations for music and lyrics they wrote for films released in 1938. We'll hear from the likes of Fred Astaire, Joan Crawford, Louis Armstrong, and Bob Hope as we listen to the nominated songs from that year. It's going to be a fun episode, and I can't wait to bring it to you. Thanks for singing along with me on this episode. Let's do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.